Amen, amen. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. Probably a chapter you love to come back to often in your quiet time. And uh, Genesis chapter 34. Uh, we'll be reading verses 1 through 12, uh, but as you're uh, opening up there, we'll be looking at the whole chapter throughout the sermon. As you're opening up, let me just say a word. Uh, yesterday was Nathan's birthday, and tomorrow is Woody's birthday. And they're just two big brothers in the Lord for me, much older, much wiser. And uh, I'm so thankful legitimately for both of them and the way that the, that the Lord uh, uses them in my life and in the life of our church. So, so thankful for both of them. So you see Woody, you see Nathan, you might want to tell them happy birthday. And uh, it's always, this is my favorite day of the year, just right between the two birthdays, two of my favorite dudes. So anyway, love those guys and I know you do too. Genesis 34, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. Why don't you stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Moses writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne, to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. And Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we ask you, if you would, to open our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, I pray today that we would be changed by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most dangerous things in the world, if not the most dangerous thing in the world, is religion without Christ. Now, I don't care what it goes by, and some people want to call religion without Christ Christianity, but we know better, don't we? There are a few sins in this world which are so heinous as those sins which are committed in the name of God. P people who have just enough 
godliness to know how they ought to talk, but no godliness in their heart that impacts the way they walk. Today we look at a story in the Bible that is another example of the way that God in His Word doesn't, doesn't bypass, doesn't hide, doesn't skirt around, doesn't shy away from the brokenness of our world. And even people who we might call heroes in the faith, we look and we see the way that they have brokenness in their lives as well. Many of us have seen in the news this very week uh, the brokenness that happened in Atlanta with the murders that happened there. We've been horrified to learn that the man who committed those murders was a member of a church that belongs to our very own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention. And I've been horrified to consider the reason he gave for those murders, that he was trying to flee temptation. And so he took another person responsible for his own sins. Brothers and sisters, I think as we look at the brokenness in the world, so often as Christians, what we want to say is that brokenness belongs to other people. But here in Christianity land, we're just shiny, happy people holding hands. Well, there's a problem with that. It's not true. Even people who claim the name of Christ, even people who claim the name of our God, even those who have seen and those who have heard that our God is God, nonetheless carry sin in their hearts. Deep wickedness. You'll notice something as you read through Genesis chapter 34. God is never mentioned. Now, He's always in the background things about God, things they would have learned only from God, what ways that we understand things that that God is displeased with, Moses highlights, and yet I think it's an intentional method by which he helps us see the way that these actions are devoid of the presence of God and obedience to God that God is never mentioned. In this text, everyone's primarily concerned about themselves. And yet they use and abuse holy things. They use things about God and things God has taught them to bring about their own means, to, to bring about their own ends. And as we, as we go through the sort of arc of the life of Jacob here in the book of Genesis, we see this chapter that stands out to us as strange. Being good Southerners, I know what we're all thinking. I don't believe I would have told that. And yet here it is. The use and abuse of the things of God. Be reminded this morning that godliness without God is not godliness at all. Playing with the things of God apart from God. Playing Christianity apart from the Spirit of God. Claiming things about what you do. Talking about it but not actually being about it by the power of the Spirit is not authentic godliness. And this morning as we look at this text, I think we're going to be able to see three truths that will help you make sure that your godliness has God involved. That your piety is actually Christian. That your spirituality is actually of the Holy Spirit. Three truths this morning that will help you seek Christ to repair the brokenness of your life in order that you might be authentically holy unto God and by the power of God. Here's the first point this morning. Our instincts need spiritual restraint. Our instincts need spiritual 
restraint. Now we're going to see some things here in these early verses that in and of themselves are good things. It's a good thing for Shechem to desire a wife. And it's a good thing for the sons of Jacob to desire justice. These are things that we celebrate in so many ways. I just did premarital counseling yesterday morning, a means by which I try to celebrate the way that, that God brings two people together and, and puts them together. I, I love marriage. I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. I love marriage. And yet we see the way that Shechem is following his instincts for procreation, for sexual activity, for marriage. We see the way that he has abandoned God in favor of doing what feels right in the moment. The Bible says that Shechem the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her. That is Dinah, Jacob's daughter, and he lay with her and he humiliated her. Now, I want to use this word very sparingly and very carefully. But I don't believe that the biblical text leaves room to interpret this as much something much other than rape. He, he forced her. He forced her to lay with him in biblical terms. Now, I want to stop for just a moment and say a word about sexual abuse. We, we see passages like this in the Bible, and I think there are some who would make it seem as if the Bible is condoning these sorts of actions, that women are, should be treated like property, some people might say, according to the Scriptures, that any man ought to be able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Nothing could be further from the, from the truth of the Bible. In fact, I want to make a few things clear, that one thing that has broken my heart in the past decade of my life has been the way churches and Christian institutions and even Southern Baptist churches seem to have been more concerned with public relations than righteousness before God when it comes to issues of sexual abuse. And I want to make it really abundantly clear that when I read a text like this as the pastor of this church, I want you to know that if you've ever experienced anything like this in your life, this is a safe place for you. And I don't care who it was, I don't care when it was, I want you to know if you're a precious daughter of God or if you've never uh, known the Lord before and you come to this church or you come to me and you tell us something that's happened to you, if you've been abused, if you've been mistreated, if you've been raped in this way, I want you to know your pastor will stand with you. I want that to be abundantly clear. There will be no room, there will be no, no place in this church or anywhere where I'm around. I can just tell you, there is no room for that. We will absolutely stand with you. And, and my hope and my prayer is that by God's Word, you can find healing. I, I know that for some of you right now, even as we read this text, it brings back painful memories that you've experienced in your life. My hope and my prayer is that you can find healing through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we live in a society, we live in a time, we live in a world where our instincts for sex have been untethered away from any understanding or care or desire about what God might think. One friend of mine said, we desire pelvic autonomy above all things in our culture and society. Our sexual instincts are running wild. And we've sown the wind in this regard. And I want you to know, we are now reaping the whirlwind in our world. But we can't cluck our tongues at those outside the church. The same is true inside the church. 
But you see the way that Shechem has allowed his instincts to overwhelm him, and he does whatever he wants, even in the way he says to his dad, go get her for my daughter. He is not thinking in terms of Christ. He's not thinking in terms of God's law. He's thinking like a pagan, and probably that's because he is a pagan. But nonetheless, he is allowing his instincts to drive the ship. But then you see God's people. And we see this happen and we think, well, surely, uh, surely things will be better when we deal with the, the good godly people down the street. And so Jacob hears what's happened to Dinah and his sons were with the livestock in the field. He holds his peace and then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And then we see in verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Now, at this point, their instincts are right. There ought to be righteous indignation and there ought to be anger when a sin like this is committed, especially against someone whom we love and whom we care for. We ought to be mad about this. And yet, you're going to see the way Not only the way that Shechem's instincts get out of hand, but also the way that the sons of Jacob's instincts get out of hand. And I think we see also in our society and in the way that things are happening around us, a temptation that is so pronounced in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the the temptation to let our instincts of anger drive the ship. Push us where we need to go. All around us, it feels like everybody's mad about something. Folks get mad, and then other people get mad because they're mad. And then they get mad because those people got mad because they were mad. Because why wouldn't you be mad about this? Every true whatever, fill in the blank, would be mad about this and should be mad about this. In fact, you'll see videos or posts or articles that end or feature phrases like, Are you mad yet? The news makes you mad. Hollywood makes you mad. Traffic makes you mad. Everything around us. Why? Why is that? So often it's because we're not thinking in terms of our life before God. We are not allowing God's commandments to shape and form the way we think and the way we live. Lust and wrath are not new issues. They are here in the text of Scripture. And don't you think that there's a little bit of both at least in your very own heart this morning. You see, we need the restraining influence of the Lord over our instincts. First of all, He restrains our instincts by His Word. It's a good thing, just a good and simple thing, to teach children what the Lord has said. It's a good thing to just remind yourself. You know what verse I like to quote sometimes? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Isn't that a good, just a good thing to think about sometimes? And when your children do something wrong or when you do something wrong, it's a good thing to quote the Word of God because it has inherent power, even for people who are lost, even for people who don't know the Lord. It has an inherent power to at least help restrain our sin at some level. And yet what we truly and most deeply need is the Holy Spirit of God to give us new hearts to help us fight those instincts which so easily prevail over us. Second of all, Not only do we need spiritual restraint for our instincts, but second of all, God is not a tool that we use. 
God is not a tool that we use. We've we got to move quickly through the narrative. You might read it later. Shechem transitions. It's a weird transition. He goes from uncontrolled, unrestrained lust, and he transitions to a love for Dinah. The Bible says his soul longed for her. Now, please know that this is in no way a situation where we're downplaying what he did. It was sin, it was awful, it was wrong, and yet he did transition into love. And so his father, Hamor, upon his request, decides to try to work out a deal. He, he goes to Jacob and asks him to let Shechem and Dinah marry. And then he suggests that this could be a pattern, that they could take wives among one another. And then what does he promise? This land would be yours. It would be available to you. Now this is a temptation for Jacob because this is something that later God would explicitly forbid, but it's also a temptation to his faith. He doesn't need Shechem and, and his father to give him this land. God has already promised him this land. And we know biblically that it's not wise in this situation for God's people to intermarry because they'll be drawn away from God. And so Shechem is trying and his father Hamor are trying to work out this deal. And so the Bible says in verse 13 that the sons of Jacob answer him deceitfully. Deceitfully. This has a little parallel to the way it seems as if Laban sort of stepped over his father uh, to deal early with, with uh, Abraham's servant. Here again, we see the way that Jacob is sort of being stepped, aside, stepped around by his sons. His, his sons are sort of starting to act like their father. And so they answer him deceitfully and say, sure, that sounds like a great deal. This works, but we've got one condition. You and your whole household and all your people, if this is going to work out, we cannot intermarry and live among and deal with people who are uncircumcised. And so Shechem in his passion immediately agrees to do this. They go back. He's the prince of the land. And so he convinces all the men in his city there at the city gates, hey, this is what we're going to do. And this is a great business deal for us. This is going to benefit us all. So they take this sign that God had given them of his covenant love for them and they use it as a device to deceive these men. Three days later, the Bible says, when the circumcised men were sore, Simeon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, go into the city with their swords, and they kill every male in the place. Now, not just Shechem and not just Hamor, but they killed all the males of the city. And then the rest of the brothers come in, and they help them plunder the city. They take all these things. And so you have a horrible, heinous sin that happens early in the chapter, and then God's people, those who are named by His name, those who have His covenant love, those who are circumcised, the Bible says, in the foreskin of their flesh, the Scripture teaches us. They are the very people who are named by God, who have received His covenant love, and they up the ante of sin by committing this heinous crime. And to make it worse, they take this sign of their covenant with God to deceive and destroy these men. My friends, I want you to know something. God is not a tool that we use to carry out our own ends. 
You see, often in Genesis, and especially in the life of Abraham, you'll read a passage and you'll think, what Abraham is doing here seems really familiar to me. And what you'll realize is that later, what Abraham has done is codified in the law. That so often, Abraham's actions are prefiguring the law of God. Moses is highlighting those things to show us the way that faith brings about obedience. That Abraham, naturally by faith, would obey God. And yet here we see the very opposite happening. You see a highlight of the way that the very law of God is being turned on its head by these brothers. Why? So often the law of God is maligned in this way when they say, you know, we're not these eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of people. But we misunderstand what the point of those verses are when we understand the law. What that means is that punishment ought to fit the crime. Now, does that sound familiar to you? It's almost the entire basis of our legal system in so many ways. That things lex telionis is this idea that, that punishment ought to be commensurate with the crime that was committed. And so the idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth means that you don't go and get a pound of flesh for an ounce of wrong. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And yet what are these men doing? What, what, what are they doing? They're going beyond the most basic tenet of the law. They're turning it on its head. They're ignoring any sort of justice which God might have in his heart. And instead of simply demanding justice on Shechem, who deserved it, they slaughter all the people in his city. Don't you see the way that their instincts of anger are being expressed in a way that bypasses God and yet wants to use him in theory? They want to use this gift that God's given them of circumcision, this physical reminder of God's promises and love. They use it to exact revenge that in no way reflects the heart of God. God is not a tool that we use for our own concerns, our own instincts, our own desires, or our own ambitions. Ambitions. Sometimes I fear the way that we use God like a pawn in our own schemes. Often good things, not murder, but, but still often good things, we go about using God like an accessory. Sometimes in our politics, in our arguments, even in our relationships with our very own family members, we want to use God to try to get our way. And furthermore, a lot of Christians like to use worldly means to bring about God's ends. But the reality is, if we are going to have a biblical understanding of justice, and if if we are going to let God's righteousness shine forth in our lives and through our church, then my friends, we have to be the sort of people who do not use God as an accessory or a tool. God is Lord. It's one of the things I love about this church, is that we are united by the gospel and the gospel alone. We don't allow our hobby horses and ideas and everything else to become points of division in our church. We disagree on all sorts of things, and yet we don't come here to talk about those things. We come here to worship God, to glorify Him in the gospel. That's our goal. Third of all, and finally, Christless religion is a recipe for total loss. Christless religion is a recipe for total loss. Jacob recognizes in verses 30 and 31 that this sin could result in catastrophic loss for his people. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me 
by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. And these unrepentant sons say something that shows they've, they're still clinging to their wrath. Should you treat our sister like a prostitute? Now for us, it sounds like Jacob's just trying to save his own hide, but as Christians, we know something deeper is at work, right? Who are these few people that Jacob's surrounded with? These are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? In fact, among them is Judah. And one day, eventually, from the line of Judah would come the seed of Abraham and the son of David, our very Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize then that the very promises of God are at stake. They're on the verge of being totally lost because of this sin. And yet these brothers still say, but what were we supposed to do? Just let God sort this out at the judgment? What were we supposed to do? Just trust the Lord? What are we supposed to do? Do this namby-pamby, love, love your neighbor as yourself stuff? What are we supposed to do? Just let them act how they want? They were not living according to God's promises. And I want you to know that religion that's divorced from Christ, Christ is the answer and the yes and the amen to all the promises of God, is a religion that's a recipe for total absolute and complete spiritual bankruptcy. So many of us have our own morals, our own beliefs, our own views, our own religion, but I want you to know that's a recipe to lose everything. Caring exclusively about your view of justice or your view of God results in idolatry and in fact eventually wickedness. And we see that happening right here in this passage. And so many of us in this very room have traded what God has told us for views of our own, and the loss has been monumental. And some of you don't even know it yet, because you've not gotten to the place where you have that final lost loss, which is your very own soul. But I want you to know that there's good news. There, there's a religion that we don't create for ourselves there's a religion we receive. There's a godliness we're given. Don't you see the way that the promises of God felt like they were on the precipice of falling apart, and yet despite the sin, despite the shame, despite the wickedness, God preserved for Himself a people in order that He might bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world so that we don't have to grope blindly in the darkness trying to find God, trying to think through what justice is, what good things are, to try to think through how to reach God. No, God came to us in our sin. He sent His Son to us in grace. He preserved these people despite their sin and their wickedness in order that a multitude might come to know Christ through his gospel. Don't you see today that you can let these things go? You can reject your pride. You can reject your self-centeredness. You can reject those sinful instincts. You can humble yourself. You can abandon yourself. And all those things that make you feel like you're losing everything are actually the way you gain everything through Christ. Hope is offered to desperate and wicked sinners even now, even today. It's only by God's grace that we can come to know Him. And my friends, I want you to know that there is so much piousness and piety out there that has nothing to do with the gospel. 
But today, by God's grace, you can know Jesus in the power of his resurrection. You get God first, and then you get godliness. I want to offer an invitation this morning. First of all, if you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, I I pray that you would respond to him in faith. Uh, You've seen already this morning the miracle of baptism, an outward expression of the fact that a a man died with Christ and was raised again in Christ, and we acted that out here as he made it public that he knows Jesus. Perhaps God's leading you to do that very same thing today. Would you put your trust and faith in him? If you need someone to talk to, I'll be available right when the service is over. Second of all, you may be a Christian, and you may say, Pastor, I I need to repent of some things. I I need to move back toward the Lord. I've been trying to do my own thing, and I need Christ's grace. You take some time this morning to pray. And if you need someone to talk to, I'm available to you when the service is over. Finally, you may be looking for a church home. We can't offer you everything at First Baptist Church, but I promise you this. We'll give you the gospel from God's Word every Sunday. We'll love you the best we can. If you want to talk to me about what it means to be a member of this church, you catch me when the service is over. Right where you are after this prayer, I'd like for you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And, oh, Lord, it's our prayer that you would move in our midst by your spirit today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.